I can get on the Apple guys back there if I could. If you guys are, I'll bring that up. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter two and verse number fifteen. There we go. We'll continue our study in the grand view of God's Word and looking at these six different facets of the doctrine of the Bible, or a bibliology as it's often called. And so, if you turn to Second Timothy chapter two and verse number fifteen. Uh, we have, we're going to cover the fifth one tonight, and then not next week, but the week after, Lord willing, we'll cover the sixth and final one, and then we will begin into a book-by-book overview, understanding the purpose and the place of all the books of the Bible. There will be some of those sections where we'll take uh, several books at a time, uh, but uh, I want to, wanted to lay this foundation again. Second Timothy chapter 2 and uh, verse number 14 One of the things I want you to keep in mind is that this was Paul's last will and testament. His last will and testament. You know, you think about a man's last words and you understand that uh, he's doing some serious condensed thinking. And uh, so it's, it's interesting to pay attention to the things that a man like Paul at the end of his life, what is it is he knows that in a few weeks or days... That he's going to be martyred. He even says it in chapter 4. The time of my departure is at hand. He knows he's not going to be released from this imprisonment. And so what is forefront in his thinking? He's writing to young Timothy, pastor at the church at Ephesus. And here's what is serious. What is forefront in Paul's thinking? Notice verse number 14. Of these things, talking about the principles that he's been highlighting. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of hearers. He's talking about arguing about things that don't matter. And what it is actually doing is it undermines those who are wanting to hear the word of God. It undermines uh, their desire. But notice what he says. Study, uh, it's the Greek word that means be diligent. Study, be diligent in your study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So this will be our launching point this evening, and I want us to study, based on verse number 15, to consider this evening this important aspect of Bible doctrine that we call interpretation. Or here's a fancier word, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is not a disease that preachers have. Okay, hermeneutics is a study of the interpretation of Scripture. And so we're going to look into that for a little bit this evening. Let's pray. Father, as we do consider this very important, indispensable aspect of rightly dividing the word of truth, I ask you that you would stir in our hearts an appreciation for the Bible, but along with that, an appreciation for rightly understanding and interpreting the Bible. God, we need your help, and I pray that you give us principles that will help us, strengthen us in our daily lives as we move forward, and will give us discernment. Lord, this world is full, and the internet, social media, television, cable television, it's all filled with men and women who purport to be teachers of the Word of God, and yet many of them are not rightly dividing the Word of truth. 
So God, it's important for us to understand the principles that you yourself set forth in your word about proper interpretation of the scripture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Just a brief review on the four previous aspects of Bible doctrine that we've covered. The first is this. You remember we spent a whole message on revelation. Uh, Revelation is God's communication about himself and his plan to man. And it includes two aspects, general revelation in creation and in conscience, but then also special or specific revelation. And the two main parts of special or specific revelation are the Lord Jesus Christ and the canon of Scripture. Now, that's revelation, but I want you to remember the second doctrine that we studied, and that's inspiration. Inspiration comes from the Greek word theonoustos. All Scripture is given by... Inspiration of God. It's God-breathed, okay? It came directly from God's mouth. Get this. The Bible is not man's, man's interpretation of what God's ideas were, okay? The Bible contains and is the very words of God, okay? The words that you have in your Bible in front of you are there on purpose. God put them there, okay? As he worked through... 40 men in the, in the time in history as he worked through 40 men, okay? So, inspiration. We defined it as God's channel through which he guaranteed the accurate transmission of that revelation. So, you see how these two are connected. Revelation is God's communication about himself and his plan to man, both generally and specifically through Scripture. Inspiration, as it relates to Scripture, is God's channel through which He guaranteed the accurate transmission of that revelation, and you have the product of that sitting in your lap this evening. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay. Then canonization. We, after inspiration, we considered canonization. And that is that as the books of the Bible are being given, and even Peter spoke of this, and John warned about it, even in that first century between the life of Christ and the closing of the canon with the book of Revelation, understand this, that there were already false teachers who were issuing false books of the Bible. And then in the several centuries that that followed the first century, they call them the pseudepigrapha. That is, they went under the name of Scripture, but they were not God-breathed books of the Bible. Okay. And so canonization is important. The word canon is not talking about the one on a battlefield that goes boom. Okay. The word that has two ends in it, by the way. This word canon means a rule or a standard or a guide by which something is measured. Okay. The word canonization, as it relates to the Bible, speaks of the criteria that God himself put in the Bible by which his people, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, were able to determine this is a book of God's word. Okay? We didn't have to wait till the fourth century for some church council to tell us your Bible is complete. Okay? God's people understood that. And so canonization is the Bible criteria by which the books of the Bible were determined and brought to the completed product of the 66 books. Uh, And that determination was done by Old Testament Israel and by the first century New Testament churches. And I'm not going to rehash those marks of canonization. The fourth aspect or part of the doctrine of the Bible that we considered was preservation. Now, I know this is a bulky definition, 
Okay, but all the parts are here. Preservation, and we had a whole message on this as well. Preservation is God's supernatural work through the faithful copies of Scripture and translations of Scripture. It's God's supernatural work through those copies and translations which assured the accuracy and the availability of His perfect words to how many generations? All. And the Bible specifically multiple times uses that term and that promise. God's Word is guaranteed to every generation. Okay. Preservation is the supernatural work of God where He guarantees the accuracy and the availability of His perfect words to all generations beyond those generations which received the inspired originals. Okay. We do not have access to the inspired originals. They were worn out through God's people using them. But what history demonstrates is that God providentially, supernaturally worked through faithful people of God to give us accurate and reliable copies and translations of Scripture all the way down to the Bible you hold in your hand. Okay? The Bible teaches that. The Bible gives that criteria. Now... These are all wonderful doctrines, and I'm guessing, based on who I'm seeing tonight, that none of us in this room have any major problems with these four doctrines or aspects of bibliology, okay? Now, the one we're going to introduce tonight, I don't think we probably, generally speaking, in this room have major problems with this one either, but I want you to know that in a very real sense, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, that is where the real battleground of today is in many ways. How many of you have recognized that there are a lot of different interpretations about the Bible? Okay. And so that's why this doctrine of interpretation, this doctrine of hermeneutics, and we're going to define the word here in just a moment, is so important. So, interpretation. Now, I'm going to get this, I'm just going to get this over with right away. By the way, I'm not planning on finishing this tonight. That takes the pressure off me. I think we're going to take two weeks to do this because I don't want to, because of how important this one is, especially as it relates to. Uh, the world in which we're living, and really any generation, needs to have a good grasp of how to rightly divide the word of truth. But uh, here's a good theologian's definition. Okay, Charles Cadwell Ryrie wrote a number of good theology books. The one that this comes from is uh, his basic theology. It's a one-volume systematic theology. And uh, obviously wouldn't agree with everything that he said, but the man has a lot of really good stuff. I, be I believe he's with the Lord now, last, if I remember correctly. Anyway, here's his definition of interpretation or hermeneutics, and then we'll kind of take it apart. And I even, I'm going to give you some illustrations that help me understand it, and I hope will help you understand it. Hermeneutics is the study of the principles of interpretation. And then he introduces another word in addition to hermeneutics. It's the word exegesis. The word exegesis. How many of you heard the word exegesis before? Okay, some of you have. The word exegesis literally means to lead or to draw out of. In other words, when we go to interpreting the Bible, we don't go to the Bible with what we want it to mean, but we let the Bible speak for itself and we find out what God, God says what he means and he means what he says. Okay? And he used specific words, he used specific grammar, he used specific syntax, he used specific verb tenses in order to communicate his meaning. In other words, I don't have to come up with a meaning and then find a way to force it on the Bible. Okay. Exegesis is going to the Scripture and drawing out of or leading out of the Scripture, bringing out of the Scripture what God meant for it to mean. Okay. 
And so, exegesis consists of the actual interpretation of the Bible, while hermeneutics establishes the principles by which exegesis is practiced. Now, we could maybe sit there and think on that one until we had smoke coming out of our ears. Okay, Let me give us an illustration. Exegesis. Hermeneutics. Okay? Exegesis. It's the individual pieces, the nuts and the bolts and the sheet metal and the rubber for the hydraulic hoses. Okay, it's the individual components. That's exegesis, where I get in and I find out what that word means, okay, and what that tense means, and what that sentence within that paragraph means. Are you with me? Okay, it's the components, but you put it all together in order to have a whole and a functional machine. Can you do without either one of these? If I remove the nuts and the bolts and the sheet metal, do I have a track hoe left? An excavator. No, I don't. Okay? And so the two are inseparably linked together. Exegesis is the nuts and the bolts of a passage, the individual pieces of a passage. Hermeneutics, or the right understanding or the interpretation of the passage, so that I have application, so that I have an understanding of that passage. That's where all these pieces put together give me an understandable functional whole. I can't dig a ditch with a handful of nuts and bolts. But I put them all together and I have a functional machine. And that shows the relationship between exegesis and hermeneutics. Now, here's another illustration, and this will probably help us all even better. These are the ingredients of homemade bread. Anybody want to eat any of those ingredients by themselves? No, okay. But you got to have them. The individual components or ingredients, okay, you've got to have them. And it's getting into the passage and it's finding out word meaning and word tense and what that preposition means and then how it builds the meaning of a whole sentence and a paragraph in the Bible and then a paragraph in a chapter and a chapter in a book and then a book in the Bible. And so it starts with the individual components and here's the outcome. Hallelujah. Okay. This is the result and that's hermeneutics or interpretation. So you've got the ingredients, that's exegesis, and you've got the loaf of bread, that's hermeneutics, that's the understanding, the interpretation, so that I can ingest, I mean, take it in and eat it, right? There was a book that was written last year entitled, or two years ago, How to Eat Your Bible. He's using a figurative picture, not What's he talking about? How to eat your Bible. This is spiritual food. How to understand it so that I get spiritual nourishment from it. Okay? So, anyway, let's move on. The meaning of the word hermeneutics. All right, here we go. Hermeneutics comes from the Greek word hermeneuo. It's used four times in your New Testament, translated into the English. And the word in the English in your King James Version is the word interpreted or being interpreted. Okay, but the Greek word is hermeneuo in our original Greek New Testament. And it carries with it this idea. In our language, this means this. Here are two illustrations of this. Mark chapter 5 and verse number 41. Jesus goes into the house of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. And he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead and he quotes or he uses Aramaic, and the Bible even gives us the Aramaic. He says, does anybody know what he says? 
Talitha Kumi. He says, Talitha Kumi, and then Mark, under inspiration, puts in parentheses these words, which being interpreted is what? Daughter, arise. And so you see there, that word, it's, it's basically, in our language, this is what this means. So we've got God's word, these are his words, and then hermeneutics is the understanding of what God is saying so that I can get the full benefit of it. John chapter 9 and verse number 7, when Jesus healed a blind man, remember he put the clay mixed with spittle on his eyes and sent him to the pool called Siloam on the southern side of the old city of David. And the apostle John, in order to help us under inspiration, said that Jesus sent this blind man to the pool of Siloam, which being an interpreted is sent. I think it's great that Siloam, which means sent, Jesus sent this man to that pool in order to heal him. So, the meaning of the word... By the way, here's just a side note. This is no, no uh, claim for any kind of viability for the Greek pantheon. But the Greek god Hermes, related to the word Hermeneo, was the messenger god of the Greek pantheon in that mythology. He was the one who brought the message from the rest of the gods to the mortals. So you can see the connection there of that word hermeneutical, from which we get our word interpretation and our word hermeneutics. Uh, then I want you to notice 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 20. Here's another use in our King James Version of the word interpretation. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 20, the Apostle Peter, in giving warning about mishandling the Bible, and he would do it in chapter 3 as well, the Apostle Peter said this, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any what? Private interpretation. The word private means unique to the individual. No prophecy of the scripture is of any unique to me interpretation. The word interpretation that Peter uses here, the Greek word, and I'm hoping you can see it if you squint. If not, you can go back and look closer. It's the Greek word epilousos, which literally means to loose or to open, or can I say this, to unpackage. In other words, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private unpackaging. In other words, if somebody, some teacher says, I have a new truth that nobody else has ever seen before. Red flags. Okay. Red flags. Peter warned about it. We didn't have to wait 2,000 years into Christian history to find out if there's a problem with that one. Okay, there's going to be the consensus, apostolic consensus. There is within the bounds of Bible believers in Christianity, there's going to be an understanding of that. If somebody's coming up with something off the wall and wanting to found it off the Bible, and it's never been seen before in the Bible, red flag. Okay. And it's not Pastor Dietrich saying that, it's Peter saying that. No prophecy of the scriptures of any unique to you or unique to an individual. Let me just say this. This is where a lot of cults have come, come from. Okay, This private interpretation of the scripture. And then our passage before us, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 15, where Paul told Timothy that the workman is to study to show himself approved to God and he is to rightly divide the word of truth. The Greek word translated these two words, rightly dividing, in 2 Timothy 2, 
15. Listen to this word. It's the Greek word orthotomeo. Doc Shoemaker, do you recognize the word ortho? Orthopedics. What does that mean? Straight bones. Is that right? Something like that. Okay. It's, it's a straight bone. The word ortho means straight. And the word tomeo, and this word that Paul uses, literally means to cut. To cut straight. He's not talking about cutting up the word of God. He's thinking, as remember, Paul was a tent maker. And the, the word orthotomeo literally meant to cut according to the pattern. To cut along the lines. Why? Why is it so important? If you've got multiple pieces, in Paul's case, of a tent, you've got all the pieces there of this canvas or this skin, and lines were traced out, and you had to follow those lines when you cut them so that when you sewed all the different pieces together, it fit. If some guy just said, you know, I think I'm just going to eyeball this and cut any way I want to, try sewing that one together. And what Paul is saying when he talks about the importance of of the workman rightly dividing the word of truth, he's saying this, cut it, take each individual piece, cut it according to God's pattern so that as you put the whole together, everything fits. Okay. Because if not, you're going to have a warped mess on your hands. Now, here are several improper forms, and I'm just going to briefly move through these. I Well, let's just look at these. There are those. One of the improper forms of interpretation is what's called allegorical. Okay, An allegory is a story, generally a mythical or a fictional story, where the story is not the main thing, but something of a a, a hidden underlying meaning. Okay, And there are those that have done that with the Bible. Most of the time it's done by those who are liberal in their theology. By liberal in their theology, what are we talking about? We're talking about those who don't believe in the supernatural. Okay? They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the supernatural divine inspiration of the scripture. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the bodily resurrection. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. And therefore, that affects their view of his substitutionary atonement. And on and on we could go. They look at the Bible as just another book. Maybe it's had a unique impact. And therefore, we need to study it for the benefit that we can get out of it. And they do not believe in the supernatural. They do not believe in a literal six-day creation. They do not believe in a worldwide flood. They do not believe that Moses crossed the Red Sea when God parted it with, the, as the Bible says, the blast of his nostrils. Many of them have said that God actually, or that the Israelites actually crossed the Reed Sea, which was only a little eddy of backwaters about nine inches deep. I like what one guy said years ago. He said, those liberals trying to say that that God's people crossed the Reed Sea instead of the Red Sea. He goes, they actually created a greater problem because it would have been just as much of a miracle for God to drown all the Egyptians in nine inches of water. They don't believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. They don't believe any of those supernatural aspects or the historicity of the Old Testament. And they just look at the stories as something to read a spiritual meaning into. Okay, now this will develop a little bit more for us. I want you to notice the second improper form of interpreting the Bible. 
And that is kind of a hybrid, a mix between two. And by the way, let me just say this. There are some who are generally conservative in their theology who espouse this hybrid, semi-allegorical, semi-literal interpretation of the Bible. And this especially relates to the prophetic portions of the Scripture. Most of the time, even as conservative as they may be in other areas, most of the time the theologians or Bible students that espouse this hybrid position... They look at the prophecy of Scripture. Do you know that anywhere from 25 to 30% of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is prophetic? And they look at that portion, and many of them are those that believe that God is permanently finished with the nation of Israel, even though most of the prophecies of the Old Testament have a literal understanding as it relates not just to the past experience, but also to God's yet future dealings with the nation of Israel. And they look at those and they say, well, God really wasn't meaning that literally. He's put the nation of Israel permanently away. And so now all of those prophecies are being figuratively or spiritually fulfilled in the church. Okay. Here's one of the problems with that. Is from one interpreter to the next... All right, from one interpreter to the next, which prophetic passage is interpreted literally and which is interpreted figuratively can differ. Who becomes the authority then? It's not God, it's man that becomes the authority. Okay. And so there is an improper interpretation here. Here's another one, a theological interpretation. Now, typically the word theological is a good word, but... The meaning of it here is it relates to interpretation of the Bible. This uh, theological interpretation speaks of those who have a preconceived bias. They got a theological framework and then they come to the Bible and try and force it on the Bible. Okay? Uh, and based on this preconceived bias or theological position, which does not believe that God has worked it uniquely at different times in the course of human history, this is often called. Eisegesis. We saw the word exegesis. This is the word eisegesis, which means to read into Scripture. Let me give you an illustration. And uh, have you ever heard the name before Martin Luther King Jr.? Okay. In the civil rights movement. Now, I'm just going to say this right here at the beginning. I am not racist. Okay. I am not racist. But here's what, and not all, but some African-American Christians have done because of the history of slavery in the United States. They have devised, and it was actually first begun by a, a theologian who taught at Harvard University, a liberal theologian who taught at Harvard University years ago, several decades ago. He began what was called liberation theology. Liberation theology really views everything through the framework of the nation of Israel's bondage in Egypt and the Exodus. And that really becomes the most important portion of Scripture. And how you interpret the Bible, everything is viewed through the lens of an oppressor and the oppressed. Okay. And no matter where you are, you always got an oppressor and you always got the oppressed. And there's never a resolution. In other words, those who espouse liberation theology will not be satisfied with reparations.
this is, if there is a theological basis for the CRT, the critical race theory, this is where it comes from. Okay? And this is in no way a racist analysis. I'm telling you this, regardless of the outcome, it is a misinterpretation of the Bible. Okay? It's viewing everything. Listen, this ongoing thing of oppressor and oppressed. Where does that fit into the whole idea of liberty in Christ? Okay. It hampers other doctrines. It, it, it hamstrings other doctrines in Scripture. Okay. So, anyway, I better keep moving here. So, why is it necessary to have a right interpretation of the Bible? 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 talks about the importance. Why do we need a right interpretation of the Bible? A right understanding of the revelation of God in Scripture... In the local church, why do we need it? Because the trumpet needs to give a certain sound in the day of battle. Okay? So that God's word can be understood. So that the mysteries of the Old Testament that are contained in the Old Testament uh, can be understood to be explained in the New Testament. Listen, when Paul talks about mysteries in the New Testament, they were things that were mysteries in the Old Testament that are now revealed in the New Testament. And so right interpretation helps us come to those conclusions. I love Psalm 119, verse number 128. Uh, I esteem thy precepts, David said, concerning everything to be right. Concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. That sounds dogmatic, doesn't it? Listen, we're not being... Dogmatic when we stand on the truth of God as it's in His Word. Okay. Uh, how then do we rightly divide? And this is probably where I'm going to... I'll just maybe quickly move through several other slides here and then we'll bring this to a conclusion tonight. How then do we rightly divide? I love this picture. Uh, if you can see it up close, uh, it's obviously an older lady's hands. And uh, you can tell they've been working hands and she's got an old pair of scissors. And what's she doing? She's cutting according to the line. Now, she's leaving a little bit on the fringe in order to have some extra to sew the seams together. She's not just cutting anywhere she wants to. She's following the line. I love this picture, too. I am not a tent camper. But I have to tell you, if it was a tent like that, I would seriously think about it, huh? That's luxury right there, isn't it? But do you notice, I was noticing this picture when I was looking at it earlier. There are all these seams running up and down here, and you got the panels on the side. Somebody followed the lines when they were cutting the pieces out in order to sew this thing together. Or else it wouldn't fit like this. This took a lot of effort and work. It took tedious, painstaking diligence in order to cut according to the lines, to follow the lines of the pattern, so that when all the pieces were sewn together, they fit and they made a functional, useful whole. That is what Bible interpretation does. In rightly dividing the word of truth, we cut according to the lines as we study each individual word and how that word fits in a sentence and then the conclusions doctrinally and practically that come from it and then to the chapter and then to the book and then the Bible as a whole so that we come to a functional, complete use of the book, the whole counsel of God. Now, 
Next week, and I'm going to just quickly move through these, we're going to look at six guides or characteristics for how we rightly divide the word of truth. Literally, historically, grammatically, contextually, dispensationally, and comparatively. And so we'll look at these six terms next week. You may read them in a doctrinal statement. I think some of them are on our church website. You may read them in some kind of book. But we're going to look at each of them in detail so we can understand better what they mean. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll go to prayer. Father, thank you for uh, this time together this evening. Lord, I thank you that you've given to us the components that we need and the guide, the rule, the instruction that we need in order to rightly handle the Word of God. Lord, great harm has been caused when people have misinterpreted and mishandled the Word of God. I think about Jesus' warning that if uh, a teacher leads astray even one little one from the kingdom, it's better for that man that a millstone be tied around his neck and he be cast into the sea. So God, you take the right handling of your Word very seriously. And I pray that we would not only, not only take it as an admonition, a warning, but also as a challenge, and also take it, Lord, as a comfort, too, that your word is meant to be understood. It's meant to be interpreted and, and rightly handled and divided so that it all works together as a functional and a complete whole. And Lord, that's our desire as a church, and I pray that as we resume the second half of this message next week, that we would come ready to look more deeply into these six terms and better understand the importance and the privilege that it is for us to have a copy of the Word of God and then to rightly use it. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.